Okay, guys, welcome to The Dad Presents. This episode is brought to you by CBDMD.com. Go there and use the code The Dad Presents for 15% off on high quality CBD products that'll help all your pains. I use it, gets rid of all my aches and pains from my 27 million surgeries for my neck, my back, my shoulder, my wrist. Get it, it's good stuff. All right, now let's get into it. All right, fans, today we got a very interesting man on. His name is James Lindsay. He's a mathematician and an author, and his new book is called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everyone. It's out August 25th. It's a mouthful, but uh, why don't you tell us what that's about? Yeah, so it is a mouthful, and that's partly because everything in the whole world is complicated now. So you have to say what the thing is, and you have to say what you mean by that, and then you have to say where your position is on that. So we got all of it there. So, um, yeah, the idea of the book Cynical Theories is actually to try to lay out one piece of the philosophical and activist history that's led to what some people call the woke movement or the social justice movement, or as I call it, critical social justice, uh, scholarship and activism that all of us are pretty keenly aware of now, even though a few months ago, it was a huge deal that nobody was really all that keenly aware of. So Helen and I decided that it would be very important to start explaining this to people a couple of years ago and started doing the research for the book. And so it tracks the development of postmodern thinking, which seems like a very fringe and weird, you know, French philosophy thing at the edge of people. So well, I guess most people now, but at the edge of their imaginations. Uh, and we tried to make the sustained case that postmodern thinking is actually integral to the very weird behavior we're seeing from the social justice warriors, as they sometimes get called, or the these activists pushing that ideology. And so it tracks the development of postmodern theory from the 1960s through a mutation in the 1980s and 90s, and then to the present day where it's kind of, kind uh, I don't know, simplified itself into almost something like a religious faith. Yeah, I, I it, it is very, it's, it's interesting. It is very religious in nature in that, you know, with religion, you're supposed to have faith and not question anything, not question the orthodoxy. And that's the situation it seems to be here. Like you can't be a reasonable person and have logic and question the narrative without getting called racist or sexist or homophobic. It's just, you, this is the way the world is. You got to accept it. Yeah, that's right. So chapter eight in cynical theories is sort of, you know, the climax or whatever it builds up to that, which is to talk about how the theory operates and thinks today so we've built up from the 1960s, explained how it developed through the, especially the 90s, and then we get to now in chapter eight, and we called that the truth according to social justice. And we do position it very much, yeah. you know, with that kind of religious undercurrent. And the last part of the chapter actually details a number of sources in the relevant academic literature that explain why you're not allowed to disagree with it. (laughs) You're not allowed to disagree with it at all. Um, You have, for example, one book we talk about, which has got a horrific title. It's called Being White, Being Good uh, by Barbara Applebaum. It was published in 2010. Most people would not have heard of it, but it was a landmark within the um, development of, of this theory. 
And she actually explicitly explains, I used to know the page number just off the top of my head, but it's been a while. Maybe it's 48 or 58 or something, 54, some one of those, maybe I six. I sound like I a mathematician. Know. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's some number of the, 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 the page. But it, she actually <laughs> explains that the only legitimate way to disagree with social justice instruction in classrooms is to ask clarifying questions until you agree with it. And it's like, that's that's bonkers. It's Jesus camp is what that is. Yeah. You know, it's not like religion even that's like Jesus camp stuff. If you've ever seen that documentary. Yes, I have. It's creepy. And, and, and so is this. So you can't, you can't disagree. You can just keep asking them questions until they convince you that you were wrong. Yeah. It's actually really funny. Uh, Just before I hopped on here, I was writing an essay about why they won't engage in conversation and debate. I keep, I get asked this like four times a day and have every, for like a year every day. And so it's like, fine, I'll finally write it down. So I'm trying to explain why they don't do, why they won't engage in conversation, why they won't engage in debate. And that is actually part of it, that they, they don't believe that there's any legitimate disagreement, um, that all disagreement must somehow be illegitimate. So if you, got, if you genuinely believed that everybody who's disagreeing with you is doing so in bad faith, why talk to them? That's the thing. They've, they've painted any opposition as being inherently evil. And once you can denounce them as being evil, they're discredited. It, it's clever. And it, it's similar to like Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. the, the organization. They, they have this very clever phrase, Black Lives Matter, that no, any, only an asshole would disagree with, right? Black Lives Matter, obviously. But they've taken that and tied it to like the destruction of the nuclear family and and it's mm-hmm. been just like gone over Americans' heads. So if you if you try yeah. to argue with any of their Marxist point of views, you're racist. It's it's a no win situation. Yeah, that's right. It's it's really it's a it's a clever trap, and that's a lot of how this ideology operates is through kind of clever linguistic traps, and. Um, that one in particular creates what, what, what is sometimes known in the activist literature as a decision dilemma. You either have to agree that you will say, yes, of course, Black Lives Matter, in which case you forward the agenda of the organization or you have to say, no, Black Lives don't matter, which is a horrible yeah. thing to say. Of course. And obviously isn't what you mean or no, I don't agree with Black Lives Matter, which again sounds horrible when you just say it out loud and, and don't have a long winded explanation to say why. And so they put you in a position of, of having no good options through very clever rhetorical tricks, which is obviously that there's a double meaning in play here. Black lives has two meanings. Black lives in terms of black people who have lives, those matter. And then black lives in terms of the political activist yes. movement using that term, uh, which nobody ha- is under any obligation to support whatsoever. I mean, you can if you want as well, but you're, nobody's under any obligation to support any political agenda. Um, right. And yeah, it's a very tricky uh, rhetorical game that, yeah. that and, and, and so, you know, whether it's about cynical theories or whether it's about the work we've done since, um, the depth to which this ideology plays with language games like that oh, yeah. uh, is just insane. We yeah. almost called cynical theories power games which was going to be a, because you can tell cynical theories, if you don't know, is a riff off of critical theory. And if you look at the cover, it crosses out the word critical in critical theory, which is a school of thought where this all comes from and replaces it with cynical. So we were going to, the, the alternate title was to call it power games and the same cover design was going to be an sure. application. It was going to be language games with language crossed out and power placed in. And um, 
language games is actually a phrase from Wittgenstein uh, that was then to, to describe a certain phenomenon of how people uh, describe things and, and talk and, and act. And then the postmodernists took it to a very like ridiculous extreme by saying that language and power are basically the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, language games make sense because uh, what they're doing with language is is really clever. It's creepy. It reminds me, I mean, back in earlier part of the decade, there was a guy on Fox News named Frank Luntz. Do you remember that guy? Yeah. He, he used to take, he used to like look at catchphrases that would catch on uh, for like creepy ideas, but he'd give it a, a name that people would embrace to get the point across. And he'd take surveys on it. And it seems like the left has taken that practice and, and mastered it. Like we have this term anti-racism mm-hmm. sounds like a great term. Like a first, first time I heard that, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking Who racist. Like, yeah, only a racist is not anti-racist, but then you dig into it and find out what anti-racism is. And it's actually racist. It's, from my super, it's actually super racist yeah. and it's also super culty. It's like it, they literally part of the definition of depending on which one of the scholars you talk to or listen to. If you listen to Ibram Kendi, uh, for example, then it, it does not take on this tone and it's just this weird kind of backwards way to think about everything. But if you look at that, that looks at outcomes and then tries to force equality because any difference in outcome is, 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 racist somehow. Mm -hmm. And so that's Kendi's definition. And so which side of that you fall on, whether intentionally or by accident makes you either racist or anti-racist. This is a terrible definition, but if you look at it in terms of how say Robin D'Angelo and the critical whiteness scholars in particular Mm -hmm. have defined it for that's when I mentioned Applebaum's book being white, being good. That's clearly within that critical white, uh, whiteness school of thought. Um, when you look at how they define it, they literally say it is an ongoing commitment to a lifelong practice. No one is ever done. That's cult stuff. That yeah. is not the same thing as, oh, I'm against racism. And so with, with even with Kendi, the, though, it's the, like the work you, is you, never done. You can yeah, never you never get, get to, to put it down. Time. You have to keep thinking the way that they do. And D'Angelo, for example, is very explicit. She says that it is a She's the one who wrote uh, White Fragility, right? White Fragility, okay. that's right. Yeah. It's almost like she's big enough now where I don't have to say who she is, but not quite. But yeah, and she's probably going to get nuked for her success soon because she's white and that'll work out right. great yeah. in the present climate. But um, she explicitly says that it is a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection. And on the surface, you're like, that's okay. Everybody should be more reflective. And then you think, well, what do they want me to reflect about? And that's when it starts getting insidious. And then she says to self-critique, and that's meant in the very specific way of the critical theory school, which means it derives from Marx's comment that ruthless criticism of all that exists. And then uh, social activism. So those are the three components that she says. So it's a lifelong commitment to social activism along the lines of the program she's laying out. And it's like, hold up. Like, no, I'm not joining your cult. I can just be against racism without that. And then she's like, oh, that's white fragility. You mm-hmm. need to be in the cult. And yeah. it's like this um, kind of impossible dilemma to escape. That's actually, if you want to talk about giving cute names to things, that's actually called a Kafka trap uh, after the novel, uh, Franz Kafka's novel, uh, The Trial. Well, now you get too smart for, for me and my Oh, audience. I know, but the, the <laughs> good book, it's a classic of literature. So The Trial is a classic kangaroo court situation. They arrest uh-huh. this guy, Joseph K. They put him on the stand. He's trying to defend himself. He's like, I didn't do it. And they're like, your denial is proof of your guilt. And so a Kafka trap is when denying your 
your participation in something is taken as proof that you're you're complicit in it. It's sort of like a witch hunt. Okay. And yeah, so th- it's like all set up with this kind of bullshit. I mean, I, I don't know if we say bullshit on your show, but I just that's fine. Yeah, you say whatever you want. Yeah. Um. So yeah, on on the white fragility, right? So I I skimmed through that book. I got it. I regret <laughs> giving her my money, but I skimmed through it. Uh-huh. And in schools, you know, this we're we're called the Dad Presents. We're we're uh, you know mostly dads listen to this show, concerned parents. And uh-huh. personally, I, I get concerned about the way I see, we're here in California, books getting pulled out of the curriculum in high school, like books that you would think are harmless, like Tom Sawyer and you know books like this getting pulled off the curriculum. And I worry that they're going to get replaced with books like White Fragility, these kind of books. That's pretty um, much right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've seen that. We've seen that in universities, right? And we've seen the way uh, you know, five years ago with the Halloween outfits and then with the, the Eric Weinstein controversy at Evergreen where, where he basically said that um, they had a day where white people should not go to school. And mm-hmm. he said, well, that's racist. And he was run off the campus. And so people have been aware of this happening at universities, but I don't think they expected it to spread to, to all of America and, and the world, really. Um, yeah. Did you, this- did you see this coming? I mean, I've been trying to run around like my hair is on fire and tell people for for like a year uh, or year and a half. So, yeah, I kind of did. And Brett Weinstein is a friend of mine and he did, too. And he's been saying it for years. And I was actually there's a documentary about the Evergreen situation made by Mike Nana, uh, N-A-Y-N-A. If anybody wants to check it out, it's three parts. It's on YouTube. It's excellent. Um, but a lot of that's involving an interview with Brett at a long table. But I happen to be at that table. So I've been friends with Brett for a long time. And we had this discussion at that time on camera and Brett lays out very, very clearly. And it's very explicitly stated when he's talking about the, the meaning of the evergreen event. He says he's constantly asked to come give speeches on college campuses about free speech or about free speech on college campuses to other organizations. And he says very clearly, the, the one thing I keep telling people this is only tangentially related to free speech and it has almost nothing to do with college campuses. They're like basically the test bed and it's going to be everywhere soon. And it is not at all about free speech except tangentially. It's actually about the fundamental operating system upon which our society runs of which free speech is one aspect. And that's also correct. So that was shot in um, about this time of year, a little, uh, just about now in 2018. So for at least two years, almost prophetic, we've been like running around with our hair. Well, I mean, it's, here's a very simple statement. This is from my, my religious friends is where I picked this up uh, from a very uh, famous, I guess, I don't follow religious stuff closely, but a very famous, um, very famous theologian used to say ideas have consequences. And so, a very small number of us in 2017 and 18 were very closely reading into these ideas and we saw the consequences. And then when Evergreen played out, we realized not only did that happen there, anywhere that has similar conditions, preconditions set within it, it will have roughly the same outcome play out. And, you know, then we set about trying to, for that documentary, for example, that Mike made, um, we set out trying to find out what those conditions are. And uh, Helen Pluckrose and I, who wrote Cynical Theories, wrote a number of essays around the same time the documentary came out, explaining the way that the theory helps create the preconditions. In a sense, you can think about it like 
the ideology is kind of like a train barreling down the tracks, a really heavy one. And part of what it does is it removes the brakes. So it's guaranteed to become a runaway train. The question just is, you know, is it, is it in a set of conditions that cause it to start moving or not? Mm-hmm. And um, at Evergreen, it was the That's hiring moving. of a... Yeah, it was a particular, the hiring of a particular president. So at the administrative level, it had a way in where it wasn't being blocked. It was the uh, agitations of a particular uh, faculty member who was basically the one like trying to get the train started. And then there's no brakes. There's, yeah. there's no white fragility is, for example, a way to take the brakes off because any way that you disagree with it, now you're part of the problem. Right. So, so let me, let me ask you then, what is like, what do they want? What is the goal and who can stop this fucking train? Um, (laughs) so the, I love getting asked what the goal is because it really depends on who you, I mean, the goal of the critical social justice ideology itself, as they say it is to create liberation from oppression by completely unmaking the system that creates oppression, but the system is everything. Yeah, it's everything. So its its goal is just to take apart everything. It doesn't have like a oh, you know, we're going to create the CCP and now we're going to be in charge. Its goal so is they to want, take apart everything. They want to dismantle society. That's correct. And and of when you look course, at the the Black Lives Matter website and you look at their objectives. They use the word dismantle uh, quite a bit. They say dismantle mm-hmm. the nuclear family. Uh, I mean, they dis, dis, dismantle um, patri- uh, uh, yeah. patriarchy. Like, yeah, they the use that word a lot. Patriarchy, the white supremacy, yeah. dismantle, dismantle, dismantle. Things that have yeah. nothing to do with black people at all. Things that most <laughs> black people probably enjoy. Most black people think the nuclear family is good. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so you can hear that word all over the place. There was a equity task force in the state of Washington, you know, up, up the coast from you guys uh, in January and the equity task force has, you know, it's a legislative is actually, I should say it is a executive entity created by the governor, but it's got the same kind of thing as everything in the administrative state is it's got that power of, legislative, uh, the legislature's approval behind it. So the legislature passes a law saying we authorize this entity to, to do whatever it is that it's going to do. And so this turned out to be, it turned out that this passed and they said that their goal was to create equity throughout the state of Washington to forward an agenda of equity. They have this long kind of horrifying meeting that, that my friend Benjamin Boyce recorded and commented on on YouTube. And um, one of the things that they say is that the definition of equity that they're forwarding is to disrupt and dismantle the present society. And so that's that's at the level of a state legislature authorizing an executive administrative entity mm-hmm. for a state, one of the 50. And um, that's that, getting big. The, the word equity you're talking about, do they not get, do people, do people in the general population not get that the only what pathway to equity, which means we're all the same, not the same rights. We, we have equal rights now, but equity, we all get the same. The only pathway is Marxism. It's communism. Like, do people not know that? And do people not know historically how communism has gone down? I mean, it's responsible for ten, tons of more death than any other kind of government. So our young people don't know the second of those things. 
a lot of people who are sympathetic to the to the the communist view think that real communism hasn't been tried correctly yet, and of course they have the hubris to believe that whoever's trying it now is probably going to get it right. It's not going to happen. Um, as for do they know the meaning of equity? No, it's a good sounding word that they associate somehow with with fairness and with money because of you know the, the equity of your in your investments or whatever equity in your home. And it's just a positive sounding word and they don't look deeply into it. And it's not even actually, I want to give you a quick correction. It is that you have to have something like Marxism, but in this case, it actually is not strict Marxism. It would be described as ethno-Marxism because equity is actually, and I'm not, I know I'm going to sound like a lunatic when I say this, but it's, and I can't quote them specifically. I can quote them saying equity equals disrupt plus dismantle. I can quote them on that. I've heard them say that exact sentence. Think about that for a second. But what equity means in practice, equity is a word that they have used to replace affirmative action, but it's not normal affirmative action. It's affirmative action on steroids. It is affirmative action plus reparations. That's the goal of equity. So it's Marxism, like a redistribution of wealth, but with a set of favoritism baked into it to pay reparations. It's affirmative action while simultaneously punishing white people. Like they want, they want to punish white people. And like, if you look at, uh, I'm in California. If you look at our upcoming election, they want to remove the language of the California constitution that, that bans, uh, making judgments or doing any legislation according to, to skin color. Right. And that follows, it's going backwards. It is. And it follows directly from, I mean, we can actually quote if we want to stay within that world. And I can't do the quote precisely without having it in front of me, but we can actually quote Ibram Kendi, who we just spoke about, whose books, uh, how to be anti-racist and stamped from the beginning have been in the top five bestsellers since George Floyd died. Um, Ibram Kendi specifically says we have to look at our policies and see whether or not they create equity. And if they do create equity, racial equity, then they are anti-racist. If they do not, then they are racist. And therefore, and he says this explicitly, he says this explicitly, if anti-discrimination produces unequal results, it's racist. If discrimination produces equal results, it's anti-racist. So he's literally tricked himself into believing that being and being discriminatory is being anti-racist and being anti-discriminatory is racist. It's literally flipping yes. the value structure I, on its head. I mean, what I heard is that if any policy, anything you do that does not create equity, that's racist. Right. That's, that's right. Bananas. That's, that's bananas. bananas. And, and, and this, this isn't new. This goes back, I mean, we can look actually back to the late 1960s when the definition, when we say equity, what we actually mean, this is one of their favorite things to do is use these abbreviations. They say racism, they really mean systemic racism or really mean cultural racism. They don't specify very clearly what they mean. When you say equity, that is actually an abbreviation for social equity. Social equity is the name of the actual thing. Go Google social equity, see what it says, read the Wikipedia entry. It's really telling. But it was actually defined at the time in the 1960s in direct comparison to equality. Equality means equality of outcome. Equity means equality of, sorry, equality means equality of opportunity and equity means equality of outcome. And so what they explicitly say is equality means that citizen A and citizen B are made equal with respect to opportunities. Equity means that citizen A is made equal to citizen B by adjusting shares. Completely different things. 
They are completely different things. And people don't know it because these yeah. are friendly sounding words. Well, yeah, what you did, you said Google it and you've referenced a bunch of books. Like you're obviously a smart guy. You stay informed. Most people don't, don't have, have time. time or don't care to yeah, get no. dig this deep, but people need to start caring. Like uh, just, I think it was last week, two weeks ago, uh, Barry Weiss and a bunch of other. Now, let me ask first, are, are you, would you consider yourself fairly liberal? You or, mean like left, right spectrum in the, in the U.S. sense? Yeah. Okay, so when I take the political compass test, everybody knows what that is, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it scores how left or right you are in terms of a scale of 1 to 10 and how libertarian or authoritarian you are in a scale of 1 to 10. And unfortunately, I know not everybody's math people, but it uses positive and negative numbers. Sure. So my score is libertarian, negative, almost 8. Like I'm super libertarian. Yep. And uh, my score is like, it varies. It has actually slipped a little bit to the right, which my critics are just loving, yeah. but it's like negative six yeah. on the left. I'm like way, I'm like past halfway on the left. Yeah. I used to be like all, like it was like negative 7.7 or negative eight. Like sure. I used to be well, super the, left, super the libertarian. The goalposts have kind of moved on those things. That's why I don't think you're necessarily slipping right. I think they're changing Changing yes. the outcomes there, but I, in the I, immortal I words, fall into that same uh, sector you're in. Exactly. Yeah, it's like in the immortal words of um, Michael Bolton on Office Space, like, why should I change? He's the one who sucks, right? <laughs> so my principles didn't change, right? And right. but the left, I mean, the the saying has been the left left me. I mean, I don't really take that because I don't care where I fall on the spectrum. I just care about what's true mm-hmm. and um, and what seems, from my understanding, to work best. But man the bulk of people who identify on the left have slipped completely off of the libertarian part of the axis right. and have gone kind of like, I mean, it's, it's, they've gone straight Pol Pot. I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say that when you see them tearing down statues and saying that we have to erase all of our history, what that is, is an ambition to get back to year zero where all the old customs have been erased and we start over year zero was the name of the Khmer Rouge's project where Mm -hmm. it ended up with the Cambodian killing fields where right. Okay. Everybody. So let, let's, let's talk about stuff. I wanted to talk about Barry Weiss and cancel culture and all but that. Yeah. yeah, We can let's talk circle, about Barry too. Barry and I are friends. It's cool. But let's circle back to that. You're talking about the statues. So I don't know if I'm being an alarmist here. Um, but it, in a, in a society when, when revolutions start, a group of people label themselves as oppressed. They point at another group as being the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Then they start tearing down statues, uh, changing language, redefining words. Mm-hmm. Then they start justifying violence against the oppressor. oppressor. Mm-hmm. And we've seen all of those things here uh-huh. already. Yeah, the warning and signs this, are just ticking off. Right. And, and this is where I'm wondering, I, I want you to tell me that there's no chance of like, a genocide like this is how genocides start like is there any chance of something like that here yes you want me to tell you something that's untrue um so this is in fact let me actually speak to that for a second first of all iconoclasm of this type is historically nearly always a prelude to really scary stuff and so when iconoclasm flares up you're dealing that's proof that you're dealing with people who don't want to operate within the current system and when iconoclasm starts becoming justified and normal, that's when you start to run a real risk. Now, here's the thing. The seed of a genocide, I've been thinking about this really hard for like the last 
I don't know, six months or so, like where do genocides come from? Where, how do you get to the point where you're willing to do like an ethnic cleansing or a killing of an entire people? And the answer is when you elevate one type of suffering as being so important that you can't acknowledge the reality of another type of suffering or of other types of suffering. So when your view, for example, in this case is so high that say racism is so severe and so systemic and so deeply rooted that you're not able to picture and, and empathize with the suffering of somebody, say, who's white, or if it's, you know, the feminist axis, you could say it's first, you know, men versus women. If it's the, the queer theory axis, you could say it's normalized versus queer. If it's gay versus straight, you can, you, we can break it down, whatever. But if you can't see that the suffering of the say dominant group matters in some way, that's, I'm not saying that's a genocide. I'm saying that's the seed of a genocide. That is the, that is the, the seed from which the tree of genocide grows. And if you Who's read, you, you, you lose empathy for a group. You of have the opposite of empathy for them. And you can read this. And this is one of the, I, I can't figure out a way to express to people like they read it and they like, don't get it. If you look, you said you cursorily skimmed through white fragility. When you get a chance, go look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 of white fragility. By the way, chapter 11 of, of Hitler's Mein Kampf is where he lays out the same thing about the Jews. That's a coincidence of history, I suppose. But chapter 11 of white fragility is titled White Women's Tears. And she lays out why white women crying is literally a political act to recenter white pain and take it away from, from black people. And in particular, it is one of the sayings in this whole movement, which was amplified tremendously by D'Angelo in that chapter, was when a white woman cries, black men die. Hmm. And so if they started coming after white women very vigorously, which rhetorically at this point they do, the whole Karen meme, there's lots of other stuff going on. White you know, I remember seeing articles right after the midterms in 2018 that were like, white women, come get your girls, right. uh, something like that. I think that was in the New York Times. And so when you start seeing this kind of rhetoric and you start to see this accelerate, and then you see, like, you confront a white woman and say, maybe that was a little bit racist, and she cries, and then you're like, you crying is racist too. Right. It's like, that's the seed of a genocide. That is really, like, this is this is potentially very dark stuff. And just go read chapter 11. I'll give you an idea. Yeah, I'm, of I'm just, I mean, I'm just going by historical accountings of genocide and, and how they build up that way. And it seems like we're obviously nowhere near that happening yet. yet. But we're, we're, we've taken the all the steps along the, the way. Seed, the seed is there and it's been put in the ground. The question is, are we going to pull up the sapling? That's actually where we are historically speaking in terms of that progression the sapling is the, the the seed is in the ground i think it could sprout and if it does are we going to pull up the sapling or are we going to watch it grow until people are getting whatever preferred method of of execution that they happen to use in our high-tech world um to give you an, ex an example of how depraved it is this isn't of course robin d'angelo's argument but i took chapter 11 i published it actually i took chapter 11 of white fragility and I changed white women's tears to white suicides and made the argument that when white, white people commit suicide, especially white women, uh, when confronted with their racism uh, and they get upset about it, or if they get deplatformed from their jobs and they lose their livelihoods and they kill themselves, 
that's a political act that's just trying to recenter white pain and make it about white people and distract from black. And it works. The argument works seamlessly. Like I sent it to people, like so many people thought it was real. Um, it, it is fluid, seamless, perfect. And so that, again, the seed, I don't want to say, oh yeah, here comes the genocide. You know, they're going to have people going in the train any day now. It's not like that. The seed is there. The seed is identified. The seed has been placed in the ground. It's being watered by the media for sure. You know, whiteness is property. So go burn down a target that we heard that for months. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, these statues needed to come down, blah, 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 blah. You know, they're peaceful protesters. What was it in the news the other day? Peacefulness intensified as they set building uh, a federal building on fire. They said peaceful protest intensified. Like, yeah, that's what happened. And so all of this stuff is adding up to where it's like that sapling is going to come out of the ground more than likely. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to pull that sapling up or are we going to let the genocide tree grow? Uh, that's where we're at. So I can't give you like, I won't give you like, Oh yeah. Doomsday is upon us. Welcome to the, to the American killing fields. But I, I will tell you that the genocide tree has been planted. And if you're not willing to take that seriously, then you don't understand the moment that we live in. It's scary. It's scary. There, there's gotta be a way for people like right now it feels like, uh, in some ways, white people are damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like white, white silence is violence. You hear that. But then if you speak mm-hmm. out for them, you're trying to overshadow the movement. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's like there's no pathway to being correct or being on their team. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And that's the point. People, like, let's get back to, to Barry, Barry Weiss and the, um, the um, you know, they, they wrote this open letter. Uh-huh. A, bunch of, a bunch of liberals wrote an open letter. Noam Chomsky's on this. Uh-huh. An open letter about cancel culture and its dangers, which mm-hmm. I think is a good step. Um, mm-hmm. But the way in which they wrote the letter is they um, were very careful to say the right is awful. Everything about the right is awful. We don't want to become like them, right? Mm-hmm. They're very careful to set it up that way. And for yep. what, what I'm seeing about society, like, I, like, like you, I used to view myself as liberal. Um, I have now definitely identify more libertarian because liberals have abandoned those principles. Mm-hmm. But I feel like libertarians, uh, moderate liberals, moderate conservatives, we need to kind of come together and like show our strength and numbers against this movement. But it, mm-hmm. I don't see it happening because when you see a letter like that, clearly anything remotely conservative has been demonized. And people are afraid to be identified with conservatives in any way. That's right. I was about to say that. So people don't understand. So a lot of what's going on in this movement is actually a theory called intersectionality, which you may have heard of. Sure. You're, you're, I had on uh, Peter Boghossian, your, your partner. Oh, okay, good, good. Went on so, all about that. So, so intersectionality is very famous in that it's supposed to unite people under their banner of oppression, right? So if you're brown, you have oppression. If you're a woman, you have oppression. So you guys can understand each other as both being oppressed in some way. And then it works into all the details of how that creates, you know, various, if you're brown and woman, what does that mean? And how does it all hash out? And so it's understood to be a way to say that all of the oppressed groups are on one team, but there's a second side to it which is that nobody who would be disagreeing with them is allowed to be on the same team. So anybody who disagrees with them now is tied up with conservatism. And so they have to now badmouth conservatism so that they don't get tied up with that implication. Right. And the conservatives want the status quo, which means they're fascists, which means they're yep. Nazis, which means they're racist, which do the whole thing. And so there's this attempt to make sure that the coalition that you're talking about, this broad liberal in the philosophical sense coalition that, 
can't form. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. I, I find myself doing it myself. I always clarify, I'm not a conservative. You, you yeah. Know yeah. Yeah. I clarify now by saying, I don't care. Mm. I don't care where you are politically and I don't care where I am politically. And that's a very upsetting sentence for them because the woke ideology is based off of the personal is political to the very point where the person itself is a political thing. I have in my Twitter bio that I'm apolitical. What I mean by that on the superficial level is very simple. I just don't care. I'm actually not interested in the nitty gritties of politics and I've pretended to be, but I, I honestly don't care. Oh, you know, president and the Senate had a discussion about immigration policy. I don't know what they're talking about. I just, I, I don't actually know. I don't care. It's not interesting to me. Other people can be interested in that and I'm not judging them. It's not interesting to me. So I'm apolitical in that sense. But I also, I don't care where I land. I don't see myself as a political idea or a political entity. I care about what's true. I care about what works. And I care about a general sense of community that's functional. Wherever that puts me on the spectrum or the compass or the, you know, 12 dimensional space of politics, I don't care. And I don't care where you are either. Can we get along in the context that we need to get along? If that context is that you're my neighbor and we're going to be friends and have a good time at a barbecue together, then we're going to be friends and we're going to have a good time at a barbecue together. Uh, I consider, in fact, this drives people crazy. My, from all of my left-leaning friends just can't, can't even figure out who I am anymore. Like It turns out that the weird bumps and turns of my life have put me in contact with Glenn Beck. I've been on his show a few times. I'm about to be on his show again. I actually consider from what little I've had chance I've had to get to know Glenn, I would consider Glenn a friend. But I don't agree with almost anything Glenn says politically. I mean, you're already a Nazi just for saying that. I know, but I think he's an interesting <laughs> guy. So the yeah. actual statement that I've made, and I've made this repeatedly, is I don't agree with almost anything the guy says, but I can almost I almost cannot think of a of a person I would want to have as my next door neighbor more. Yeah. And you yeah. should be able to get along like that. Yeah. It, I think people need to stop caring or else you're right. That people are not going to unite and, and they divide and, and conquer. Right. Yeah. I frankly think that political personally, I think that I know a lot of people love them, but I think that political discussions are frankly boring. I think that somebody's politics are one of the least interesting things about them. And I'm not going to connect. In a, I don't think people connect often in a deep way unless they're activists around politics. Your average person doesn't have to be an activist and shouldn't be. So shouldn't be pressured to be one. So the things they're going to connect over are going to be like maybe a shared sports team or living next to each other or sharing the same community or going to the same church or all of the things that actually make life interesting and worth living. Maybe they do the same activities. Maybe they bowl together. Maybe they do martial arts together. Maybe they mm -hmm. go into a painting group or do yoga or whatever it is that makes them happy. And the attempt to politicize everything so that that everything. can't work is what really gets me going about this thing. And really like, no, I'm not playing that game anymore. Right. I don't want your politics here. Well, the reason people play that game and the reason people are concerned is cancel culture. Like people are afraid of, of getting canceled. They're afraid of losing their jobs. And this fear doesn't come out of a vacuum. It's happened to a lot of people. It's happened to a lot of famous people. So, mm -hmm. so how do you, how, how do people just, how do you defeat cancel culture? That's people actually, gonna, it's actually really hard until that happens. It actually is really hard, but there are some things that people can do relatively immediately to understand um, that it is in some ways very bad and very serious and a very difficult problem. And in other ways, 
it is not nearly as bad or serious as people perceive it to be. Because the first prong of cancel culture is to bombard you on social media. Mm-hmm. This turns out people think this is a big deal, especially if they've never experienced it. This is not a big deal. In fact, it's so easy to deal with people bombarding. It's hard psychologically, but practically speaking, it's actually so easy to deal with people bombarding you on social media that it's embarrassing how simple the solution is. Don't go on social media for a few days. It's right. all it takes. And the storm goes away from you. And, and in fact, if you don't argue with it and you just let it go and let it rage and either do your own thing and don't look, which is possible. I almost never look at my notification. I'm, I'm in a social media storm constantly now. I just don't look. I just don't know what's happening there. And people send me these notes. They're like, how do you deal with all the trash you get on social media? I'm like, I don't look at it. Simple as that. It turns out you can actually do that. You can choose not to look at your social media stuff. That part is so easy to deal with. And what will happen is if you just ignore it, you'll probably become much bigger on social media if you care about that kind of thing while it doesn't bother you and kind of becomes funny and everything's great. Yeah, now, but that's on the other hand, the, yeah, that's not the super concerning part. That's like, not the concerning that's, part. That's up to the individual, but most people that, have jobs. The hard part is when they start doing the same campaign against your employer or against your family. They start harassing other people in your life. So whether it's your family or your friends or whatever that they get a hold of, that's a problem. But when it's your employer, it's a real problem because up until this point in history, the rational business decision to make when there's a big stink and there's a lot of drama and people are calling and harassing and they're doing all this stuff, you know, your office is now getting 500 phone calls a day with regard to you is, well, clearly you're a problem. It's cheaper to get rid of you. Yeah. The thing is, though, and we've got to start to understand this, is that it is no longer the case. We now live in a world, and whether there are legislative solutions to this or policy solutions to this or not down the line, which may come, we did come up with revenge porn legislation that's moderately effective. Cancel culture legislation could also become moderately effective. Harassment legislation could be expanded uh, to deal with this kind of thing. But in the moment, and we can expect that that moment's going to linger, um, It's not cheaper to get rid of the problem uh, just by like say firing the the employee. And we have to start cultivating a norm of that because what'll happen is you give in and that becomes extortion. Take for example, the case of Amy Cooper. Amy Cooper is the woman who was walking her dog off its leash in New York City just before George Floyd died. Christian Cooper, no relation, was the black man that's a bird watcher who, you know, had a confrontation with her and filmed it and put it online. And Amy Cooper, you know, started using his race explicitly when she called the police, whether for descriptive or, uh, you know, other purposes. I don't even want to say racist because she could have just been trying to like escalate the, 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 like, Hey, nobody knows what's in her heart. Nobody knows what's in her head. Maybe it it was racist. Maybe it wasn't. It It didn't look good. She was panicking clearly. Um, either way, This is the case I'm talking about. So they fired her. Mm -hmm. And then the immediate call on social media after they fired her was, well, obviously her employer was a company that was willing to hire a racist in the first place without sufficiently vetting people. So that company now needs to start going through its list of employees to look for more racists. So if you give into this, it's not the cheaper option anymore. It is an extortion. And if you give into the extortion, you're asking for more extortion. It so seems we, you're, you're kind of right because uh, the people who typically come out and apologize are, are people who are already considered on the left, you know, like um, 
a whole host of who's the late night talk show, Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon. They both got caught in, in blackface. And it, it seems like they are more vulnerable to cancel culture because they already identify with those people. Well, of course they are. They not only do they already have the, the requisite values by which they can have the knife twisted in them. They also have the predominance of their audience and their advertisers are already thinking that way. Yeah. And so the, it's really funny. The more left you are, the more susceptible you are. Cancel culture barely can do any. I mean, they've been trying to cancel Trump since 2015 with literally, I was going to say zero effect, but that's incorrect. The effect has been just to continue to catapult him into untouchable status. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, yeah, it turns out that all you have to do is say, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't participate in that game and then take whatever hit comes on the chin and then you're basically invincible. Assuming your employer doesn't care. Your employer would also have to share those right, values. Because they've been, they've been trying to cancel Tucker Carlson for years. Um, mm-hmm. It's really intensified in the last three months, but he works for Fox News and they're not playing that game. But they could turn around tomorrow and decide this is in our best interest to let him go. That's right? right. And so it is actually, there is a bit of courage involved there and there's a bit of a worry. But what, I'm, what I, I wanted to say in general is that this is, we have to start to realize, and I think very quickly, and I say we in the royal sense, and I mean like everybody, Mm-hmm. Um, as a society, people who are in places of positions to be employers need to start to realize that this is a feature of doing business in the social media era it is that occasionally a hate campaign is going to come up online and people are going to harass you and they're going to try to do that by vicious means. I don't know what structural changes that, that means. Does it mean you get rid of your phone line? Maybe. Maybe it does. Maybe it means that you actually shut your phone line. Who the hell calls anybody anymore anyway? Hmm. Um, I mean, really, it's like, who calls? So it's like there's the, there has been a technological and thus social interface with technology shift in how we behave. And if we're still operating basically in like 1995 uh, kind, of, uh, kind of operating system in terms of how business is done and we live in 2020, and we have a, a bunch of, and actually relatively small and a very interestingly uh, tangential, uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, activists who are able to manipulate that system to get their way. And when I say tangential, I can't tell you, I get, you know, I get hundreds and hundreds, like absurd amounts of email and notes and messages sent to me about what's going on in the world and people's lives. And of course, I can't vet that. Some of it might be made up. Most of it, I assume, is true. Um, but the number that I get, that specific, and some of these have been vetted, they're verified. So it's like, like, you know, I work for such and such company. We have this protest campaign that someone so said something racist at one point and they're trying to blah, blah, blah. It turns out it's a somebody that doesn't even live in the same state. They have, no, they've never bought the company's products. They have nothing to do with it. They're just some agitator who's going to look for trouble and causing, it's not a customer. It's nobody that, somebody that has nothing to do with the business at all. And so you're going to do all this weird action now to satisfy somebody who was, who never bought your products before and is never going to buy them in the future anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you see this with, I see this with public officials who have reached out to me in various jurisdictions and they're like, yeah, we looked into the specific names of the people filing the complaints and none of them, I mean it, none of them are a constituent. It's always somebody from outside of the constituency doing it. And so these are these are intentional agitators. Yeah. And that's what we're giving into. So we're not even talking about a groundswell. We're talking about a perceived groundswell mm-hmm. 
through social media. Yeah, and a lot of times they just make up a story out of thin air. I had that happen to myself personally um, on social media. I don't want to get into that. But I think what part of the problem is, um, is, and this is a weird way to say it, part of the problem, but most people are pretty decent people. Most people mm-hmm. are not racist. Most people are not sexist or homophobic, and they don't want to be identified that way. So the language that that the left is choosing is very clever um, to appeal mm-hmm. to the, the empathy that most people have. That's right. Um, and, and people who see through it are too scared to speak up because they too are also good people. They don't want to lose their job and they don't want to be identified as, as racist. So they keep their mouth shut. But we, people need to start getting brave sometime soon. Like people need to start fighting, pushing back against this stuff or it's, it's going to be too late. Like I, I, right. I recently reread, um, Orwell's 1984, right? So again, I don't, I don't want to be alarmist, but I reread it because it feels like we're heading into that direction, right? Like in that book, the, the government's spying on you through your devices. They're encouraging uh, citizens to tattle on each other. That's cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the rewriting of language. We're having that now. Like the, the book could very easily be called 2020. So mm-hmm. people, people need to like be brave, They do. I mean, that's actually true. Um, There has to be a willingness. And I think that this is actually a dividing line. I was was speaking with with Peter the other day on the phone and he put it on Twitter and I guess I got a lot of attention. Um, I was speaking with Peter and he was like, I'm trying, I can't quite put my finger. This is exactly what he said. I can't quite put my finger on how this works. I have so many people, you know, my, that I work with that I've been professional contacts, you know, extended professional contacts, so many people I know personally who are, I used to be very angry at because, you know, they're pushing this ideology and he's like, I no longer am angry at them because I feel like they've been taken in by it. They've been hoodwinked yeah. by it. Yeah, and, exactly. And then he said, I can't quite figure out though what, tr- these are very intelligent people. They're very professional people. They're very thoughtful people. I can't figure out what trait it is that leads them to be so susceptible to this and to get into it so heavily. And I said, I can tell you what it is right now. I can tell you in a very succinct way. It's people who are afraid not to be liked. They're afraid that people won't like them. And that's what it is. And so when you look at conservatives, I'm you really, friends you really now. Think that's it? Yes, I do. I think that that's so the primary childish. thing. Was that? I said that's so childish. It is. Uh, but I'm friends with a lot of conservatives now, which of course would get me canceled. But um, which is preposterous. Uh, and I talked to them about it and I was like, you know what I think guys, I think, you know, the difference, like if these woke people come after somebody on the left and they're like, Oh, you're racist. You see these people crying online, they fold, they give people their jobs, doing all kinds of ridiculous stuff, washing their feet in the street and stuff like that. However, if you come up to a conservative and you say you're racist, the, the conservative actually looks back at you and says, no, I'm not. And then I have like these conservative friends and I was talking to them and they told me about a month ago, they were like, well, the line has been crossed in my opinion. Uh, if somebody calls me a racist now, it literally doesn't mean anything to me. That doesn't mean I'm going to go be racist. I'm going to continue being not racist exactly like I've always been and it's not going to change and they're just going to have to deal with it. And it's like these people aren't afraid of not being liked by those people because they haven't ever been liked by those people. And they've been constantly accused of being a racist for the past 20, 30, 40 years, sometimes probably correctly, but mostly falsely. So Mm -hmm. they've had to reckon. They're used to it. Okay. 
Well, yeah, well, it's not it, yeah. just even being used to it. They've had to reckon with it. When is uh-huh. it true and when is it false? Yeah. You know, they go home and they think about it for themselves. When is it true and when is it false? And they've had to do the hard work and they've already figured it out. And so now it's like their attitude is just like, you know, they're like, you're racist. That was racist. You're like, no, it wasn't. Yeah. And that's it. That's and if you don't like do. me, go away. So I was talking to this leadership guy the other day and he's, you know, we had this long podcast conversation we get to the end of it and he's just like, gets this look on his face, you know, we're doing it by zoom or whatever. He gets this look on his face and he's just like, I think I'm just at the point now where if somebody says you're racist, I'm just going to say, no, I'm not, hmm. I'm just not. And then the, the follow up to that is, and if you don't, if my not being racist isn't good enough for you, kiss my ass. I don't care. And so you flip the power script at that point. You're no longer on your heels. You're making, you're not the one who's unlikable. They're the one who's being unlikable. And if more people are willing to get the courage to have that attitude, first of all, what they'll find my experience has been, first of all, what they'll find is um, that they do get called racist a lot. Uh, But second of all, what they'll find is that it's a relief. It's an immediate relief. And third, almost like the amount of actual acceptance that you get from people who don't basically live on Twitter is nearly universal. It's insane. There's a small fraction of my furthest left friends who are very extreme about this, who have literally essentially written me out of their lives now. And literally everybody else across the spectrum is like, yep, I'm with you. It's about time this crazy shit stopped. Yeah, you're you're right. I, I, I really can't even relate to it because I've, I've never cared about being liked. And that's exactly what I've done on social media. I've, I've been getting called racist. You know, I'm married to a minority, uh, a large majority of my friends are minorities. But when you say those things, that's you like, uh, uh, giving the, I have a black friend excuse, right? Like yeah, there's, I wanted there's to jump on that. I wanted yeah, there's to nothing, say. there's nothing that you can say to convince them. So you just have to not care. And it's a shame that it came to that because there is still racist in the yep. world. Those people it's- exist and they've made the word meaningless. So now what do you call, what do you call, if you're calling you or me a, a, uh, a racist, what do you call a Nazi? What do you call that guy? You know, yeah, so it, it's it, a that's, meaningless that's, word. That's such a huge problem with this. So it's going to jump because this is actually a really important point that everybody misses. And I think it's super important to draw out when you said, you know, there's, that's the black friend excuse, right? Yeah. Like, let's follow that. Let's walk down that road a couple feet and just see where that road goes. You know what the conclusion of, oh, that's your black friend, you know, you're just saying you have black friends or whatever, so you're not racist. It means that you're not allowed to have black friends. (laughs) That's what I'm telling you, where intersectionality, the backside of intersectionality is nobody who doesn't agree with the ideology is allowed to be friends with each other or work together. It fragments everybody you talk about divide and conquer, they're collecting themselves into one group of oppressed and fragmenting everybody else because now you can actually have black friends, but it's very difficult. It's much harder because you have to constantly wonder, not necessarily as a white person dealing with a black person, but the theory says that in every cross-racial interaction, there's an issue. So you don't wonder, you know, you don't have to wonder about your friend mm-hmm. except in terms of have they taken on the ideology. And the second right. they do, I get these emails from black yeah. couples or sorry, interracial couples, I should say. And I get this from interracial marriages. I've got it from interracial uh, therapy, like clinical therapy. So like therapist and their patient relationships. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking to, these are both sort of special intimate level relationships that have an interracial 
component. You know, one person's in the, all the cases I've actually heard are one person's white, one person's black. And the result has been almost horrifying beyond belief is that you're seeing these people say, you know, well, I think you've been racist or you've got to look at the racism. I had an email from a woman talking about how she was like multiply raped and all of this horrible stuff. And she's got all this trauma. And so she intentionally sought out a black male trauma therapist to, you know, add that extra layer of, of overcoming the trauma. And luckily she's mostly in a good place now with regard to that and just has some kind of tangential issue. She's still seeing the guy for and then all of a sudden George Floyd dies and they're talking and she said one day that they're having their conversation and she's like, yeah, and blah, 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 whatever conversation. And as you know, you know, I haven't always had the best experiences with black men da, 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 and just kind of casually mentions it, meaning literally that she was gang raped by like five of them at once violently. Uh, and he's like, hold up, <laughs> hold up we're going to talk about systemic racism right now, you know? Oh, and so all of a sudden she's in a therapeutic context and he's like jumping on the years being systemically racist. And oh, like, boy. you haven't taken into account all of the things that those men would have faced, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, uh, they raped me, you know? And then yeah. again, with the couples, it's like, I woke up, man, my wife was hilarious about this too. Cause my wife puts up with no bullshit from people. And so I got this email from this, this woman and she's like, basically my, I'm white. My black husband has lost his mind with all of this critical race theory stuff. And so he's like ranting and raving. You've always been racist, blah, blah, to blah. To his wife? To his wife. Uh, and like, we've been married 15 years. We have kids. What are you talking? Yeah. And so she, she, she's like, how do I bring him back? And I'm like, I don't know. Cause it's an unfalsifiable yeah, theory. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, I know you're talking about, I have uh, different groups of friends. I've got many black friends and some of them seem to have fallen into that category. And some of them have fallen into the category where they're like, this is bullshit. And then there's a third category of, of guys who are looking at it all objectively, which is what everybody should be doing, which is what everybody should be doing. That's right. And so it's the ones, what happens is every one of those people, and it doesn't matter if it's the white person or the black person that takes it up. It literally doesn't. In fact, it's usually worse if the white person takes up some of the For theory. Sure the authenticity of the relationship falls apart. Similarly, I've received hundreds of notes from people, from black and brown people that are like, how do I get my white friends to stop apologizing to me and crying and stuff? (laughs) And it's like, it just makes the relationship weird. And I've had these emails from these these people, they say that they had a racial sensitivity training at work where they took all the black people and put them together and they made all the white people sit in a separate part of the room and start telling them all how they've been racist their whole lives. And like now their work relationship super awkward. It's made, it's, I mean, some weirdness is healthy, right? It's, it's good to have some of these kind of conversations, but it, it's, it's beyond that at this point. But in a real way and healthily yeah. and person to person. I went to this Christian conference in January. It was ridiculous. I get invited to this super Christian, conservative Christian conference. You know, I'm like a liberal atheist. And I show up there and I'm like being treated like royalty. It was the most bizarre thing ever. And so I'm walking around and but I, we anyway, we sit down in this one session. I wasn't really attending most of the conference. I was just kind of there tangentially. And we sit down in this one session, though. These two guys are doing a podcast on stage in front of like 6,000 people or something crazy. And so I'm watching these guys talk. And it's like one of the most profound things I listened to. Peter was there with me, actually. So he heard it. And it hit him really hard, too. And they were like, you know, this whole thing is about racial reconciliation. And they're like, racial reconciliations. They're both black, by the way. Um, racial reconciliation is a lie. 
There's no such thing as racial reconciliation. Anybody tells you that there is, is lying to you. Races are abstract concepts. They cannot reconcile. People reconcile to each other. Hearts reconcile to each other. So when you have these awkward or challenging conversations where you can get real with your friends across some difference in identity, whether it's race, whether it's sexuality, whether it's whatever, that's a person-to-person thing, right? Mm -hmm. The last thing you need is some awkward-ass theory where people are digging for trouble and everything's intentionally being like misconstrued and you're looking for the problems. And the last thing you need to do is have that in some weird group setting Mm-hmm. where it's not appropriate no. at all. And it's all so messed up. Like I'm, I have also, I have, you know, black friends, I have queer friends, I have, you know, you name it, uh, trans, I've, you, yeah. you name and, it, I got them. And, and if it's, you have, if they're your friends, you probably have more in common than not. So that's right. That, that's where people should start. You really want to make some people mad? Do you know how we navigate the issues? I mean, of course, we end up having serious conversations about these things sometimes when they come up. You know how we navigate the issue most? Oh. Jokes. Jokes. Yeah. The one thing you're really not allowed to do. Right. Yeah. You're not allowed to do it. I was going to say. I mean, nobody's, not, got, nobody's it, got canceled more than comedians in the past. It's real, right? though. That's how you float. Like, if oh, you don't I'm, know where the boundary is, that's how you float the boundary and you 100%. see how somebody reacts. 100%. Because. Like if I float a joke that's got a racial component to my black friend and he laughs, I know that that topic's safe to talk about. Right. And if he kind of cringes, yeah, it's not, and we exactly. got to have a conversation. Yes. And if he's like, "Dude, what the hell was that?" Now I know I crossed the line. Now you know. But he also knows in re- in return, he uh-huh. knows, he actually knows that I'm not meaning anything by it. Right. So he's it's it's not like, what did you mean by that? It's like you can actually have a freaking like interaction as human beings. Uh-huh. And if, there is a social function to humor. We evolve to laugh for a reason. And that's mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think what's happening with comedians is is one of the worst parts of it, because that's such a necessary thing for a healthy society is to be able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at each other. We're not for allowed fuck's not sake. allowed to laugh at each other anymore. Only you're only allowed to laugh at people above you, which, yeah, is racist, that's right. which is racist in its own to assume that white people are above everybody else, right? <laughs> Isn't it? I, yeah, it's we're running out of time a little bit. Um, and I, I wanted to shift oh, gears a little forever, bit. Oh, we man. So let's go. Yeah, I, I could too. But um, yeah, I'm really enjoying talking to you. You, you know your shit. And I, I really appreciate your honesty. And it's, it's brave. Like, I think you're doing important work. But you and your partners, Helen Pluckrose, Peter Bughasi, and last year you guys, or a couple years ago, you guys did the, um, the, uh, what'd you call it? The, um, grievance studies, grieve, grievance studies, which, which were studies where you wrote, made up these bullshit theories and scientific studies like rape at dog parks and, and the concept of fat bodybuilding and other, other things, just brilliant and hilarious. But the really hilarious part is that it was totally embraced by the universities. You guys won awards before they figured out it was all fraudulent. Did you expect um, that kind of success or were you just trying to be funny? No. Okay. So we were trying to be serious and trying to be funny at the same time. We did not expect success. And luckily, um, the Mike Nana, the guy who did the evergreen documentaries was doing a documentary about this. So he has us on tape talking about how unsuccessful we believe we're going to be a lot. Uh, I actually early on thought we would get zero papers in and would just torpedo our credibility completely. And Peter thought we might get one or two, maybe three in kind of low rank journals if we worked really hard. And then that's not what happened. We had 
ridiculous success. Yeah. Like we, we hacked the code and figured out how they write their papers and understood their scholarship enough to where we were producing, as you noted, award-winning scholarship. Scholarship is getting taken up by the, some of the most recognized and reputable journals. We did not crack their number one journal, but that depends on how you define it. They're like number one overall journal. But with a few more months, I think we could have pretty easily cracked even their number one journal. And so um, we did not expect that level of success. We were we were as shocked as anybody to see it. I mean, I literally almost like lost my mind when that paper, I got the email saying that the dog park dog rate paper got an <laughs> award for excellence. Like I was like, what in the world? It's like the, the I, I told Joe Rogan that I felt like the world slid off its foundation a little bit. So no, <laughs> we weren't. Um, it was the most bizarre thing. And then it's, I mean, I don't mean to be weird about it, but there's a sense when we started to get that level of success, it's like, oh crap, this is almost like maybe historic and I'm in the middle of it. That's weird. It's like a, it was really this surreal yeah. set of months. It really exposes the, the way they look at science. Oh, they don't like it. Yeah. They're, they're, that's right. They're anti-scientific. And I know that because I just made that crap up with Pete's and Helen's help. And, <laughs> and, and they, they didn't, they, there was no questioning or investigation or anything. It's just like this, this stuff fits our narrative. We're going to run with it. That's what I wish. That would be a much better story than what actually happened. They did question it, but they questioned it the wrong way. So for example, with the dog park paper, they were like, I don't understand how you're going to um, be sure whether a dog wanted to have sex with another dog because you're a human. And so you don't know when dogs really want to have sex unless you have really specific expertise in that. So you need to interrogate your anthropocentric biases. They literally said oh that. Oh my God. So then we end up, we end up in the, in the paper, including a sentence that's like situated as I am as a human and not as a dog. And like they published us saying we're not dogs. Writing they made it an worse. academic paper. They, they made, made it, it worse. worse. And this, was, this wasn't this was 100% of the comments we got. We got some that were very responsible and we're glad to have seen those. But on every single paper, we got, we got comments that pushed it worse rather than better. Every single paper. Tell, tell, tell my audience, in, in case, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about these, but in case they haven't, tell, tell them about the um, fat bodybuilding because that, that just tickles me. Okay, so there's a discipline. We have to start by saying there's actually a field of study called fat studies. Fat studies does not study what you probably think it studies. It does not study, say, obesity or the problems with being fat or, you know, the health problems. In fact, it rejects that completely and says that that's a medicalizing narrative that problematizes fat people and makes them unacceptable and creates fat sigma. It is, in fact, Utterly, it only uses the word obesity in scare quotes, and it says that it's not a real problem. It doesn't really exist, and it has no connection to health whatsoever. They, they uh, say it no is, connection to health, obesity. Yeah, correct. So I, I'm, I'm by trade a physical therapist. I mean, I went through five years of school to get a master's degree, and mm -hmm. they taught me the exact opposite of that. I would assume- Yeah, that's just medical that discourses. That's hegemonic medical discourses that you were taught that perpetuate fat phobia and thin normativity. I don't I'm even not know what kidding. those words mean. Yeah, fat phobia means a systematic hatred of fat people and fatness. And thin normativity is that the is the view that it is normal and thus better to be thin and fit than it is to be obese. That's literally their position that that there's no truth to that and it's just prejudices. 
it is all prejudices. That's their that's their belief. They need to be challenged and overturned at every corner. So if you don't this understand is, this that, is, this is the party of science, is what we've been hearing for the last twenty years. And if you if you don't understand what fat studies is, like fat bodybuilding doesn't make sense. So we wrote this paper saying that the sport of bodybuilding is inherently fat phobic, which is not a hard case to make, <laughs> right? But we did it in a very clever way, not to toot our own horn too much, but we said that. When bodybuilders do their bodybuilding, they make themselves physically bigger, but fat people are also physically bigger. And so that there's some intrinsic difference between in terms of how society interprets muscle built versus fat. And we actually quoted, I think I always get it wrong, whether it's Marilyn Wan, it was somebody else. I can't think of Kathleen Lebesco. I, I kind of know all their names. Some one fat scholar, the, the impetus for the paper the was fat that I scholar. Yeah. That's funny right there. Yeah. Uh, one fat scholar um, had written, and we quoted this in the papers, that it takes time to build a fat body. It takes even more time to build a politicized fat body. And I was like, fat body building, <laughs> off to the races. And so we argued that to fix the sport and make it not fat phobic, they had to introduce a category into the official like IBFF, or if that's what it is, yeah, IBFF bodybuilding competitions. That's fat bodybuilding. That's like So they have bikini, they have like evening wear or whatever. There's four of them. I don't remember what they are. Anyway, display, you know, categories in their competition. Yeah. And I don't mean to make fun of bodybuilding. I just don't know what they are. Uh, and it's fun to make a joke when you can. But we said that there needs to be a fifth category, which is fat bodybuilding. And people of any size can enter and it can't be strictly competitive because that would be exclusionary. So it's a non-competition and a performative display <laughs> that in the politics of parody that for wait, fat wait, so people to get up on stage. It's a it's a non-competitive competition. That's right. That's that's the point. That is exactly <laughs> is exactly what we said. <laughs> why why couldn't why couldn't it be a competition? Because they hate competition because competition means there's winners and losers gotcha. and it means that there's a better way to be fat versus not fat. Sure, and so obviously. yeah. Yeah, so so was, this, was this one embraced? This one was accepted, yes, very, very enthusiastically accepted. And when you talk about the peer reviewers, did they really engage with it? Or they just say, oh, let's go with this. No, we had, in fact, one peer reviewer is very mad. And we had to do all this stuff because we wrote this from the name Richard Baldwin, who's a friend of Peter's. Richard Baldwin is a professor of history, but he is actually also a famous real bodybuilder who's like 72 now or so and just shredded. The guy is just like stacked 72. So it's like we had to interrogate our own thin privilege and they had all these things. But then at the very end, Peter is a, Peter's a sci-fi guy. He probably talked to you about it because he talks about it to everybody all the time. And so he's huge into Star Trek in particular. So the last section of the paper on the first draft was fat bodybuilding, the final frontier for fat, <laughs> you know, as an appeal to Star Trek. And they, this third reviewer lost, I'm assuming her, but I don't know, marbles over the phrase final frontier. And so we had to change the paper. We could not call the last section a final frontier for fat or fat activism. Why? For two reasons. Reason number one, final. By saying final, we imply that there's ever an end to fat uh, activism. So it's, it's like the white fragility thing. There's it must no, go on and on forever. forever. And second, frontier. Because frontier evokes memories of the genocides of indigenous people across the North American uh, continent. So we need to choose a different word. What? I'm not kidding. I can show so it to bizarre. you in black and white. I'm yeah, not I kidding. Believe you. I, so we were bizarre. like, 
I mean, that was pretty early on when we got that feedback and we just stared at it and we're like, that can't be real, but it was real. It was really real. Like, so we had to take genocide. We had to take frontier out because frontier makes people think of genocide. I mean, then none I found of this out- can be real. None of, it, it can't be real that you made up a sport called fat bodybuilding. And the only criticism was that you used the word frontier. That's just, well, that and that the sport was originally too competitive, so we had to make it a non-competitive competition also. <laughs> and that we were position, we didn't sufficiently interrogate our own thin privilege as a how, fit bodybuilder. How many people, I mean, so when we're talking about the far left and this kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine this is more than like a tiny, tiny sliver of the population who thinks That's this right. way. Like how widespread is this stuff? Not very. Um, it is actually, this is kind of the weird thing is like fat, fat studies is so small that I think they still only have one journal, one academic journal. And if you look at like the really, the biggest one, of course, is gender studies. And like, I think the number one gender studies journal, if you look at overall journals and academic rankings is like close to number 900. So it's just not big. It's like fewer than 2% of graduates so are in how are, all like, of these. With the gender studies thing, if, it, if it, there's not that many people involved with it, how has it gotten so much power? Like, again, get <laughs> it divert. Like, the, the, like, I want everybody to be happy, right? If you feel mm-hmm. like you're a man trapped in a woman's body, have the surgery, you know, do whatever. Like, people should, libertarian, you should be able to do what you want to do. But yep. there's no, as far as I know, there's no real science behind this stuff. And I don't love, as a dad, that they're now giving kids um hormone blockers i mean if you look at the statistics most kids who who are um who have a gender issues gender confusion when they're young grow out of it if they're left alone but if you look at people who actually transition the suicide rate is off the chart and in the last 10 years as acceptance has grown for trans people you would think that the the suicide rate would go down but it hasn't it's actually gotten higher which suggests that there's a lot of people going through this transition that maybe shouldn't yeah, there's there's a lot of issues there. Um, so I'll answer your question since you this is the dad presents and it's all about dads and being a dad and you're a dad. Um, how how has this if it's so few people how has it had so much power? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming that you're far enough into being a dad that you understand toddlers. Yeah, and um, what happens, you know, just rhetorically asking, what happens if you never, ever tell your tantruming t- toddler no? <laughs> yeah, you got a brat on your hand. Uh-huh. Nobody will tell it no. Yeah. That's why you have this incredibly small fringe of scholars that are literally incomprehensible even to their next closest peers in the academy. And I mean, we're talking a very small percentage. And then you have a kind of like, swath that maybe accounts for about seven to eight percent of the population who are generally strongly sympathetic to these arguments and these ideas but are definitely not the experts pushing them i mean we could probably sit down in the next few hours if i had the books and count all the fat scholars there's just not that many and then you have i don't know what percent of the population but i would say it's a significant chunk of all the ones who identify left of center who will not tell these people no they will never say no to these people, either because they're going to get called a bigot or because they're going to, afraid they're going to hurt their feelings or because they're afraid they're not going to be liked or because they're afraid that they're, that they're not being sensitive enough to somebody's needs that are, are you know, different than their own. Yeah, and so again, good, good people. 
they're good they're just people. good people. They don't want to hurt feelings. Which is why I actually think that the the activists pushing this stuff are coming from a place of evil. And I've said that a bunch of times now. They're taking advantage of people's goodness. They're taking advantage of the best part of people to push a radical agenda that most people don't want any part of. Like, seriously, does anybody except for like a handful, proportionally speaking, of very uh, unrealistic, coddled, overweight people, does Anybody want to erase all of the medical literature on obesity? Does anybody would, sensible want to get rid of that? Not. I would really hope not. But well, nobody. I mean, Helen, my co-author in Cynical Theories, Helen is morbidly obese. She struggles to try to fix that. There are actually she used to be quite fit. There are decent medical reasons that led her to become morbidly obese. She's not happy about being morbidly obese, but she is absolutely unwilling to compromise on the science. Yeah. What is the science of obesity? Yeah, you know? I, think, I think at some point we've confused acceptance of people with science. Yeah, that's, the, that's kind of the trick here is, is, you know, we've talked about that throughout the show, um, that there's this confusion between words. So one of the ones that they do is if you reject my ideas, you reject me. With the trans thing, it's the most extreme. If you reject my current self-identification in terms of my gender, then you literally wish I was dead and didn't exist. Like they take it to that extreme. Fat people do the same thing. There was actually a huge thing in fat activism. I don't mean fat people, I should say fat activists. Yeah. There was a huge thing in fat activism a number of years ago that was, that was the fat genocide thing, which is where they were saying that weight loss programs were enacting a fat genocide because if it caused all, if they were successful, it would eliminate all fat people. So eliminate all fat people equals genocide. Yep. No, it doesn't. You're all fit and living your best lives. What you're are you talking killing, about? You're not killing anybody. You're, you want to make them healthy. But you're no, eliminating that fat culture is what they, so that's a genocide. The, and oh, it's, it's like genocide the most of the culture. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So it's like all of these stupid double meanings of words everywhere, like all the way down, they're all over the place. So, you know, we get that, we get that all the time. It's like, here's a game they play with the Black Lives Matter. They come on people's social media and they're like, oh, this person didn't donate to Black Lives Matter. And you're like, delete that comment. Just block them off your page. Right. Then they pop back up and they're like silencing black people. And it's like, no, we're silencing an asshole. <laughs> it's a different thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this huge conflation, though, with whether it's fat studies, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's whatever, that they def- redefine that to mean the authentic thought of, say, black or fat people. And then to say that if you disagree with them, that that means the real reason you're doing it is because you hate black people or you hate fat people or you think they shouldn't exist at all or something like this. And it's like, you, as a normal person, you hear this crap and you're just like, come mm. on. And that's like, that's the argument back. So it's hard to f- argue back against it because your argument is just like, no. That's I think that's the- how most people feel. They, they, they just hopeless in arguing back. So they don't, they just keep their mouth shut. Yeah, it's a thing. There's this paper that recently came out where these guys that are already like super, super, super far on the left and people tell me that they're ruining their own field. Security theory, I guess is what it's called. And then they got called racist by some of these extra hardcore woke theorists in some paper. And it was like a few thousand word paper explaining how the the woke theorist thinks that they're racists. And it took them like 101 pages to write the rebuttal to explain why that's BS. And it's like, that's the problem. It's like something I can say in a sentence, you have to take 100 pages. Yeah, 50 pages to explain why it's baloney. 
Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you just one more question and we'll get out of here. And yeah. again, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous. You've, you've kind of set yourself up as a person who's, who's battling woke culture. Um, you've really put yourself out on the front line. So number one, how's that going? And number two, are you optimistic for the future of America? So how's it going? I mean, it's tedious and tiring, but it's nice to have a purpose when you wake up in the morning, I guess. Um, I would rather be studying other stuff than how people are desperately wrong, but it's so pertinent right now that it's actually not the worst thing in the world to have to study. Uh, it's kind of unfortunate that I have to, the, you know, social media scene is pretty ugly and I do kind of constantly live in the fear that it will turn, you know, ugly in real life. Like, are they going to come attack my house? I'm surprised they haven't already. I can't tell, you know, I thought that for a while and now I can't quite tell. Maybe it's coming and maybe it's not, but it's, it's uncomfortable. You have to kind of constantly live that way now, or I do. And then, um, am I going to get canceled off of social media? Am I going to get canceled off of say my, my income source now that I actually have one? I haven't had one. So that makes it a little easier. I've like gone like two years with no income, just doing this for free because it needs to be done. And basically nobody's like willing to pay you for stuff. (laughs) apparently. And so it's like, Oh, if they cancel my stuff, I guess I just go back to where I was before. And that was okay. But, uh, it is a worry all the time as for optimism. Um, it's the same thing as when I said about the seed of genocide having been planted. I'm generally optimistic. And like I told Joe Rogan, I don't have time or energy to not be optimistic. Uh, this is a, definite inflection point. There's no denying that this is an inflection point in American history um, and in thus Western history and thus in world history. This is a critical moment where things will, where, where much about the future will be determined and it is not guaranteed. It's very much in fact uncomfortable like the um, Lord of the Rings where he says, you know, the quest is like walks along the edge of a knife straight to either side, but a little and you fell. And it's like, it's kind of like that um, because you don't want, like if this thing takes over, it's a mess. It's just a disaster. And if this thing wakes up the sleeping giant and we end up with right-wing populist fascism, that's also a disaster. And if you look in the history of like the fascist movements, it's typically that there was like this, you know, bounce back one side from one side started getting out of control and the other one bounced in and took over. And so it opens a lot of, we're in a position where we have a lot of ugly open doors. And so people who, whether they're of faith, whether they're not of faith, whether they're conservative, whether they're, as the U.S. says, liberal, meaning on the left, whether they're libertarian, everybody who kind of ascribes to the central core values of Western democracies, if you still have too much butthurt to say America, which I'm proud to say that anyway, and our constitution and so on. If you're the Western liberal tradition, if, if everybody who subscribes to that can't start getting together and standing up for it and remembering what it means and how to stand up for it, then we're in a bad spot right now. And so I'm optimistic because I see the way through, there will be a lot of disruption. I think that, for example, our university system has basically cooked itself. So we're going to lose a lot of institutions. Uh, to this. And that will require new things to come in and fill those voids. They exist in society because they provide a necessary service or function and they, those things have to be filled in. 
And so we're in one of those very disruptive periods. But if people are willing to say, I'm ready to do the work to build the new thing, and people start stepping up and taking advantage of those opportunities where other things are collapsing, then I think we're in a very actual, potentially optimistic phase. If people are going to cower or if they're going to overreact, we're in a bad, bad point. Like we're, we're at, the, at the, the dawn of a bad, bad point in human history. So again, the seed has yeah. been planted and what are we going to do with it? That, that's my worry is radicalization usually radicalizes people in one direction or the other. So that's where I get concerned. Like you said, it could swing back the other way, which would be equally terrifying. And I see, I actually see the beginnings of it and I don't like it. It's one of my biggest fears. Um, so it's really up to this. And I keep hearing from more and more people. So I know we're out there. We are a huge, mostly silent, mostly have better things to do majority who for a few years, right, starting about a year and a half ago, <laughs> two years ago, have got to set aside the fact that our lives are going to be disrupted a bit. And we have to stand up for the principles and core foundations of our society together and to stop absolutely. allowing people to divide us. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Um, that's a good way to end it. Um, people, be brave. Be brave. And let's stick together and, and battle this. It's ridiculous. Uh, James, thank you so much for your time. Uh, tell hey, people where they can find you. Tell them when your book's coming out, all that stuff. All right. So a couple of quick things. You can find me primarily on Twitter. If you're um, kind of socially conservative, I apologize to you in advance or trigger warn you in advance, I guess, at Conceptual James is my handle. Uh, my business that I'm running to try to inform the world about this as quickly as possible is a website platform, mostly educational resources. I put up essays, podcasts, videos, um, I'm writing literally an encyclopedia of their tricky terminology. That's at newdiscourses.com. So you can go to newdiscourses.com. The book is Cynical Theories. It is officially out on the 25th of August, but uh, the way that distributors work, it turns out that when they when the merchants get them in hand, they tend to send them. So we've already heard from some people receiving their copies. Uh, so you can order it you know, on whatever your favorite bookseller is. If you want to skip your skip a step of remembering anything, I went ahead and got the domain cynicaltheories.com. So you can just go to cynicaltheories.com and it takes you straight to one of the retailers, Amazon retailer, and you can get it that way. Uh, so that's what's going on. I've got Cynical Theories coming out roughly now in the, in the next month, technically. I, I have new discourses, trying to write an encyclopedia, not unlike cynical theories, which you have to buy. The encyclopedia is free has hundreds of entries or a hundred over a hundred entries already written on there. Uh, and there will be more to come. Uh, and then at conceptual James on Twitter, if you want to find me on, I mean, I'm, I guess I have a presence on all the major social media now, but the only one I really do anything with other than aggregate my Twitter stuff is Twitter. All right. Excellent guys. Uh, if, if you like what you heard, support them, buy the book. I'll be, I'll be buying it as soon as we get off. I can't wait to read it. Thanks a lot, James. Yep. Sure thing, man. Good to have you. Or wait, no. <laughs> Other way around. Yeah. All right, man. Hey, that was great. Now, I just want to remind you that uh, this podcast is brought to you by our new sponsor, CBDMD.com. Um, it's a fantastic product. I, I will not do ads for products that I don't use and that I don't like. Like I've told you guys before, I'm not not doing this podcast or this Facebook page to make money. I do it because I enjoy it. But you know, if someone's going to throw money at me, um, I'll take it 
if it's something I believe in and something that I use, and I do use this product, it's fantastic on inflammation. As you all know, I've had my spine fused. I've had my shoulder worked on twice, um, two, two surgeries on my shoulder. I've had my left wrist fused, which makes masturbation incredibly hard and painful, so almost not worth it, but but still worth it. Um, and CBD gets me through all my pains. Um, it's why I'm still able to be 47 and still be this fine, sexy freak that you, that you guys see and know and love. Um, it's from exercise, diet, and CBD oil. So check it out. Use the code that Dad presents. You get 15% off, and you put a little more change in my pocket than what they're paying me to do this ad. All right, guys. Much love.